Hi, I'm John. And I'm Cecilia. Welcome to Crazy Cat Paranormal Speaks. Hey, Crazy Cats. Welcome to another installment of Crazy Cat Paranormal Speaks. Today, we have a very noted author on our show. Uh, He's written, oh gosh, a whole bunch of books. And that's about as high a number as I can count at this point. And they're all a little different from each other, even. And they're all a little different from what I would normally read, but they are very captivating. I think you're going to enjoy them. I want to welcome today author Eric Henry Vick. Welcome. Hi. Thank you very much. How are you today? I have been better, but I'm doing okay. Still upright and breathing, as I like to say. That's usually a decent start to the day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before we get started, I need you to answer a rumor for me. Okay. I heard this rumor that you are not always an author of fiction, that you actually started out the world with a PhD in artificial intelligence. That's correct. I actually wrote my first fiction book that I published before all of that, but uh, it was in, oh boy, I think it got published in 2001 and nothing really ever happened with it. And I just went on with my life and that included at the time getting a PhD in artificial intelligence. It's such a, a difference. Did you always want to be a writer and then the first book not taking off as you hope? changed your mind or did you always want to work in artificial intelligence and the sciences? So the strange part about this is that when I wrote that first novel, I was in a Master of Fine Arts program for creative writing. But due to circumstances of my life at the time, I couldn't afford to keep doing that. So I went out and did various jobs. And probably eight years after that, I decided I would go back to school and get a bachelor's degree in computer science so I could go work in the video game industry. And somewhere along the line, I took a class from the chair of the computer science department, and he told me I was wasting my time getting another bachelor's degree and really encouraged me to go into the graduate program. So I had never planned on getting a graduate degree in computer science. I thought I was going to be there for two years or so and then go work for EA, who had a studio. Mm in the town that I was in. Oh, yeah. And instead of doing that for two years and then going to work, I ended up there for maybe seven years, and that included teaching at that university for a little while. Oh, cool. And so it's it's like I started off thinking, hey, I want to write books, and then I got sidetracked, and I got off into these technical fields. I I ended up working for EA for a while. Then I went back and taught more at that university and then moved up to New York to teach at another university that had a a focused game design and development program. Um, Then got sick, was disabled by that chronic illness Mm -hmm. and started writing again. So it's, you know, this experience pretty much describes how my entire life has been. Yeah. A winding trail. Are you open to talking a little bit about your illness? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it it's part of your life, yeah. right? It's like guides to how you how you went from one point to the other. Right. It's you know, I say this a lot that it's inseparable from me mm-hmm. at this point. The there is no cure for my illness. The best you can hope for is for the disease to go into remission for as long as the medicine that you're taking continues to work. 
And then after that, you have to hunt around and try to find another one. So it doesn't define who I am, but it definitely is part of who I am, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is this what pushed you back into writing, or were you thinking about it before your diagnosis? I've, I've always had in my mind that I wanted to write fiction. And every time I read a Stephen King book, I thought, I want to do this. But, you know, before, in, it, getting sick is like, a, um, I don't know how to say this, which is weird because I'm a writer. I'm supposed to use words. But it's like it has a good side and it has a bad side. The good side was that I was sort of freed up from the things that get in the way of most people writing. You know, right. I no longer had a career because I was, yeah, I couldn't work. Um, and I had a lot of free time on my hands. It also gave me motivation in two ways. One was, you know, I had no career. I didn't leave the house very much. I didn't have really anything to do. And after a while, there's only so much television you can watch. There's only so much stuff you can do on the web, so many games you can play right. before you start to lose it. You know, so part of the motivation was I wanted to do something that kept me focused and moving forward in life rather than just stagnating. And the other part was I had a lot of questions from friends and family that basically amounted to what's it like to have this disease? And, you know, it's one of those invisible disabilities mm -hmm. that people talk about. Most of the time when people see me, I feel I'm feeling good because, you know, I'm out of the house and doing something. So you don't look sick, yep. you know, um, but it's the rest of the time. And I wanted to do something that would help people understand these kinds of illnesses and the impacts that they have on your lives. And I also wanted to do it for other people with an invisible disability, you know, to kind of say, you don't have to sit on your couch. You can do different things, you know, whether it's painting on glass, which one of the people in the readers group does, or, you know, writing or composing music or whatever it is, you know, there are ways around the illness. Right. Melissa and I recently did an interview for healthcentral.com and she said something that I think is really, really smart. She said with diseases like this, you spend a lot of time in the beginning thinking about what you can't do and what you can't do anymore. And at some point to move forward, you have to start thinking about what you can do. And writing is something that I can do. We've built a lot of accommodations in my little writing space, I have programmable mouse, programmable two programmable keyboards. I have dictation that I can do, all kinds of things like that. That was going to be my next question. We had an author on recently who is losing her sight. So she uses Dragon Speak to dictate all her books. Right. And then she has somebody go in and, and clean up the punctuation. So I was going to ask you, do you use accommodations like that? I do have Dragon. Um, I only use it when I can't type. So the, the two keyboards I have, one is just a regular keyboard that has a mechanical keyboard with the lowest activation force for the keys that you can get. Yeah. And then I also have 
a gaming one-handed gaming keyboard that has a thumbstick. And so I have, you know, kind of two lines of defense before I have to use Dragon. I write in a way that Dragon doesn't work really well with. Need to see the words and there's a significant pause in Dragon from what you say until it gets on the screen. So it slows me down. It's horribly inaccurate, which is the fault of my disease because it also, there's, I never knew this, but you have a joint inside your larynx. That's mm-hmm. what activates your vocal cords. And that joint is impacted by my disease. So, you know, my voice tends to change from day to day, including, I meant to tell you this before we started, but it can go out pretty much at any time. I'll lose my voice and then I have to move my head a certain way to relieve the stress on that joint and then my voice will come back. So dictation isn't optimal for me, but I, I do use it when I can't do anything else. You know, I just finished episode eight of Clown Warder, Cecilia, and in the author's note, I wrote about something that I call grief days, which is something that, you know, everybody I think with an invisible disability goes through. And in the beginning, it feels like Mm self-pity, but I don't think it is. I think what it is, is grief for the things that your disease has taken from you, you know, your health and whatever else. You know, I have a big list of them in my author's note that I talk about. And I think grief days are something that's healthy for us, even though I hate them because, you know, they make you feel like crap. But I think it's healthy and I think it's something that helps you move on and find your niche and your strengths, you know. Don't mind me. I'm just tearing up. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't usually. So you've got your diagnosis. you're, You're dealing with that. You go back to writing. What's the first book you write? I think I know, but I'm asking. The first book I wrote was Aaron God. I knew it. Um, yep. You're Hank, right? Yep. <laughs> and Melissa is Jane. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. There's no doubt about Jake that. Jake is our real life son. So. <laughs> so how long did it take you to write that? Uh, it took years. You know, when I wrote the, the book back in 2000, I developed, a I don't know, a a way of working, but I was healthy. And part of writing is keeping the story alive in your head. And, you know, when you have to take a long break from writing, you tend to lose that story. And when you come back to it, it's a different story. Yes. Or you're moving down a different path. And I had to find accommodations that would let me write, then flare for six weeks, and then come back and pick up and keep moving. And it was a long process to figure that out and to figure out something that worked for me. And part of it I I got from Stephen King and part of it I got from Melissa. And, you know, part of it I just got by working through the problems that my illness caused with writing a, a big novel. The first draft of Aaron Gods was over a thousand pages I think it was wow. 248,000 words, um, way too long. And part of that was because, you know, I would, I would flare, be out of it for two weeks to two months, and then come back and try to pick it up, and the story was different. So I had chunks that just no longer really fit together. Yeah. Originally, it was just going to be a book about a guy chasing serial killers who were really Wendigos. And <laughs> well, kind of somewhere along the 
Yeah, somewhere along the line, it just fit that these Norse gods came into it. And that's when it really kind of took off for me. That's when I hit my stride, I guess. I had all the accommodations in place by the time I got there. And it just got real easy, you know? Did you do a lot of research for that book or did you just kind of wing it? I did some research, um, mostly involving reading the sagas and, well, not reading them all. I cherry-picked the stories that I wanted to use in the book. And I did a lot of research into Icelandic, the language and how to anglicize it. I tried really hard to make those words readable. (laughs) Don't think I succeeded. No, I think you did a good job. As long as I don't have to read it out loud, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, But that's the language that they use. It's actually Icelandic because that's the closest living language to Old Norse that we still have. So, Did you do the whole series before you moved on to the Demon King, the the Blood Letter series, or did you kind of... Move back and forth. Yeah. So basically, I did it all wrong. I did Errant <laughs> Gods, and then as I was editing Errant Gods, I just woke up one day thinking about Toby. And, you know, I talk about an Errant Gods SUV therapy, and that's a real thing that Melissa and I do. We get in a car and we go for a long drive somewhere to get my mind out, out of the house, you know? When we started doing this, I used to tell people it was like being in prison, uh, except I thought the warden was pretty sexy (laughs) and the other end had to do what I said. So, you know, it was important that I got out and saw the world, you know, and on one of those trips, we drove by the White House in the beginning that has the crazy wild rose bush in the back and it had a stack of bicycles in the backyard. Oh, wow. You know, like 20 or 30 bicycles back there. and. I actually, as we drove by, I said to Melissa, there is a story in that house. <laughs> and, you know, we went to the park where the tree that I modeled Herlequin after is um, this huge tree with all kinds of neurals awesome. all over it. That when I looked at the tree, it was like, oh, those are children's faces right there. So all of those things kind of ganged up on me as I was trying to edit this big mammoth thing of Aaron God's. And I just woke up one day and knew I had to write it. And so I wrote Errant Gods. I got halfway through editing it. And then I wrote Demon King, finished Errant Gods, published it, edited Demon King, published it, and then went back to do Rooms of Ruin and Wild Hunt. So you've got Errant God in that series and Demon King in that series and um, Leary and Drew. Right. <laughs> do, you, do you have a favorite? Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about Leary and Drew in a minute, but is there a favorite book out of it? Yeah, that's 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 a tough question, and I'm not not entirely sure it's fair. <laughs> but I'll answer it. I said um, it was nice. I didn't say it was fair. <laughs> right. You know, they're all so different. Yes, they um, are. To me, Aaron God's and Blood of the Seer series is always going to have a special place in my heart because it's about me, essentially, Mm -hmm. and it's about Melissa. And in a way, it's a metaphor for our struggle to deal with my disease. In a way, it's like wishful thinking, you know, like, gee, wouldn't it be cool if I could find someone like Sif who could just do magic and make me feel better. And dragons. 
And it has dragons, yeah. <laughs> you can't go wrong with dragons. That's true. And, you know, I really, really like Claw and Mortar because mm-hmm. I like the relationship between Drew and Leary. I like writing Leary, um, <laughs> mainly because I liked Jerry Orbach so much. And I like the character he did on Law and Order so much. I- I'm going to be honest here. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Law and Order. Really? Really. <laughs> Really? So when I when I read your books, it's brand new. So <laughs> Oh cool. Cool. Yeah, it's it Clown Order is really easy for me to write because I can just set up a situation and then picture the characters from Law and Order and kind of see in my head what they're gonna do, you know, how how they're gonna react and I don't know. It's kinda like watching the T V show inside my head as I write it. That's pretty cool. So it's a lot of fun. Well, I I love that series. And again, all three of your series are so vastly different, right? So the the Aaron Gods and, and those books in that series, um, they have a, a ring of truth. You can tell that you are the main character in there. Yeah. Just by the way the, the books yeah. flow and, and how they feel and, and what goes on in those books. And you really don't pull any punches with that. You don't really... Um, <laughs> make things seem rosy in yeah. those books either. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Uh, the the Demon King is that whole, the Blood Letter series, that's completely different also. I mean, y- y- you still got the gods and things in there, but what goes on in that book is a little crazy. And I love every minute of it in that whole series. But it, it's, it's entertaining and it pulls you in. Yeah, and- definitely. Definitely. And that, that's probably the one that I had to do the most research for was all the Akkadian myths and, and that stuff really took a lot of time to figure out what I was Demon doing. Demon King and... was the first book of yours that I read. Really? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's how I found out about you. And full disclosure, listeners, I am part of his readers group, so I do get to read his books all the time, and it's awesome. Yeah. But that, that was the first book <laughs> of yours that I read, and I'm like, hey— this is different and unique, and I really like this. Where where are there more? And then I had to hunt around for more, and then I joined your reader group, and I don't have to hunt anymore. You just hand them to me, which is awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but Drew and Leary, again, still have a paranormal element to them, right? We, we've got the, the King of Hell and Drew's family and vampires and dragons and all sorts of ghosts and things. But it is also so vastly different from the other two. Man, what goes on in your head? I'm afraid to ask, but I'm asking anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, the story behind Clon Warder is weird. Um, you know this from being in the, the art team and all that, but 2019 for me was a pretty terrible year. Mm-hmm. I had some pretty bad complications from one of the meds that I was taking, and I ended up in a wheelchair for about seven months. And I got just horrible horrible cramps. Oh. Um, like 10 out of 10, 24 hours a day. And I ended up on these really, really, really strong antispasm meds and the max dose of Dilaudid every day for months. And we needed something to do because I couldn't go anywhere, really. I couldn't get out of a chair, basically. So we bought the Law and Order box set because we both had always loved Law and Order. And we just started watching them. And it's, I can't remember how many episodes it is, 
uh, hundreds. I was going to say 783,000, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's really a combination of loving those stories and loving the character of Lenny and Lieutenant Van Buren and all that stuff. And those medicines, <laughs> because I had these weird thoughts while I was watching these episodes, like, you know, what would happen if Lenny just turned into a werewolf right now and chased the guy down the street? And, you know, what if the murderer was a succubus, you know? And I just had all these weird thoughts. And I channeled those, thought about them once I was off the medicine and decided I could do something fun and funny with it. And that's how that got started. I don't know if I would have ever done Claw and Water without having that experience, but I did. And I'm kind of glad because I really like writing those stories. They're lots of fun to write. They're lots of fun to read. Yeah, I like the... I have discovered that I like making people laugh. Um, so it's good. It's a win-win. <laughs> I'm, I am I am from the the bottom of my heart. I am sorry that you had to go through all of that you went through, but I am grateful that you were able to take that and turn it into the series. Because it, it, I get giddy every time you say, hey, I've got a new one. Sneak peek. Here you go. <laughs> it's like, yay, that's <laughs> another new one. Um, I have not seen Law and Order, like I said, do they drink that much coffee on the show? <laughs> no. Um, he does. He's always drinking coffee. And one of the things that we remarked on while we were watching it was, you know, he, he would just show up to the crime scene with a cup of coffee, Lenny Briscoe. And I never intended the books to revolve that much around Starbucks, but it just <laughs> kind of turned into a thing. And then it was hard to let go of. <laughs> I have this feeling at some point, Leary's going to be walking around with an IV drip of just coffee everywhere he goes. <laughs> yeah, I am enjoying taking that to ridiculous extremes. And the reactions of the people around him are, are enjoyable for me. So, I'm going to ask you this question. Leary and Drew, will there ever be a, a, a dreary or a Lou? <laughs> Will we ever hook them up? Yeah, um, I don't know. It kind of feels like there's something going to happen there, but I kind of like the tension right now. So I don't know. I don't. I really don't know where that's going. Because the first few books, she's been the sensible one, right? But the last book, <laughs> I'm not so sure about this. And I don't think Lucy would disapprove. Her uncle Lucy, I don't think he'd disapprove. Well, I'll I'll have to let you read episode eight, and then maybe we'll talk about that again. But, <laughs> yeah, I I think you're right. Um, kind of the 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 Gehenna family's reaction in episode seven just kind of happened. All of that really just kind of happened. I never when I set out to write episode seven, I thought it was going to be a lot more of a parody of A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> than what it turned out to be. You know, it's, when I'm writing a scene and it's really working for me, I know that it's strong if it chokes me up. Okay. And then for whatever reason, that scene in episode seven where Drew calls for her mother just really choked me up, yeah. you know, so. And her mom 
is very mom. I knew it was going to be good, and I just had to let it go, you know? So when is 8 coming out? Uh, 8 will be out, ooh, the first week of November, and let me open a calendar so I can give you the actual date, November 6th. Is that when it's publicly out, or is that the reader group out? Because I don't think I've got 8. Yeah, that's the actual launch time. Um, The art team will probably get it around the end of October. Yay! The last three days, something like that. Awesome. I'm very excited about that. All right, I've got another goofy question for you. Okay. Rumor has it that you might occasionally borrow people's names as characters in your book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. That's true. I some of them I torment more than others. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think Kellyanne Maley knew what she was asking for when she asked if I would put her in a, a book. Yeah, that's the first um, one I was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the people who haven't read it in The Hag, which is book two of the Bloodletter mm. Chronicles series, a serial killer kills someone named Kellyanne Maley and removes the skin from her face to make a mask. And so that's how I included one of my readers in the book. And imagine my surprise reading that book and then being in your group and seeing that name go by. And I'm like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that was a little yeah. bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it, I'm, I'm a, what they call now, I guess, a discovery writer. We used to be called pantsers. That's me. Um, and all that means is that I don't plot. I just sit down and write, and I let the story tell itself to me, kind of. And I had never really planned on <laughs> turning Kellyanne Maley into a serial killer's mask, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that brings up another question here. <laughs> I'm so full of questions today. <laughs> You don't plot, right? You don't plot. To me, there's not a lot of fun in plotting. I get it. Yeah. But how do you keep track of all your characters, especially in the Bloodletter series where you have a lot of characters with a lot of their own abilities and things? Yeah. So this is actually, you know, I I talked a little bit before about the accommodations that I had to learn that would let me do this with my disease. You know, earlier in life, I had a very... I've always had a very good memory and I could just rely on my memory to get me through whatever writing I was doing. But then again, with these long breaks or whatever, that went out the window. And when I was struggling with this, I read Bag of Bones by Stephen King. And in that book, he, you know, the main character is a writer, big surprise. And the writer is telling somebody that, the way that he keeps the story alive is that when he's done writing for the day, he just goes down a couple of lines and writes what Mr. King calls a next note. And for Stephen King, that's just, you know, what's going to happen next. I said, that's a perfect solution for me. And I started doing that inside the book, but I needed more because to keep the story alive when I can't write, I still have to be thinking about it. And if I'm thinking about it, part of my brain is writing. So I had to figure out something that I could do to keep track of all that and have some kind of thing that I could get to from a phone or a tablet or whatever device I had accessible at the time 
And Melissa told me that at her work, they used Microsoft OneNote because you could share it between different people. You can get to it from your phone, from a tablet, whatever. That's true. So I moved those next notes from, you know, two lines down in the book that I'm writing into OneNote. And that evolved into keeping a story Bible in OneNote. Oh, there you go. That's a good yeah. idea. So as I'm writing and I, you know, come up with character X who has ability Y, I just jump over to OneNote and put it in. And so that really helps me to keep track. And is that that's something that you can pull up on a tablet or your phone or whatever? Yeah, they have, uh, they have apps. It's part of Microsoft Office. So, you know, they have apps for iPhone and Android. And so I have it on my phone or... If I'm out somewhere or I wake up after a nightmare or something in the middle of the night, I can just open my phone and type it in instead of trying to, you know, is it worth getting up and finding a piece of paper, you know? Yeah. <laughs> is it worth getting up at three in the morning? And <laughs> so. I will tell you what, listeners, if you write and you wake up in the middle of the night with an idea, Make sure you write it down. Email it to yourself if you have to. One note it. If you have a if, if you're a paranormal investigator like us and you have a a digital recorder, record it. Whatever, because the minute you roll over and go back to sleep, it's gone. Yeah. I won't say how I know that, but I know it. Right, and that's definitely true. We even got these things. Melissa found these things on Amazon that are called shower notes because I was constantly taking a shower, and then going, oh, I've got all this, this stuff in my head. And I would have to hurry up and dry off and go run and find my phone so that I could try to type it all in before it disappeared. So she got me these things. They're waterproof notes that are stuck to the wall of the shower, and I can just write the notes while I'm in the shower. <laughs> all right. I'm going to have to Google that because I'm trying to figure out how that works. Yeah. It's, um, it's a lifesaver, really. You know, if you do a lot of thinking in the show, I highly recommend them. <laughs> They're called Aquanotes. Aquanotes. Okay. We're going to have to write that up. Aquanotes. Yes. Aquanotes. Yes. Awesome. All right. I have, I have traditional questions to ask you now. Okay. Now that we've had some fun <laughs> and you're all loosened up and you trust <laughs> us, now I have some traditional questions to ask you. <laughs> all right. Let's see if we can betray that little trust. <laughs> what inspired you? To want to be a writer. I mean, you're obviously super duper intelligent. You've, you've got a scientific mind or you never would have made it through the PhD program in artificial intelligence. That's not usually a recipe for top-notch fiction writer. Well, strangely enough, the, my PhD dissertation was how to make artificial characters appear to have personality. <laughs> there you go. So, it was still very technical, but it was a lot more leaning towards the creative side. I've always been creative. The writing part, I really think, came from the second grade teacher that I had, uh, whose name was Mrs. Butterworth. And she was one of those teachers, you know, that I'm sure everybody who was ever in one of her classes remembers her. So for me, you know, we're going back 45 years to... to <laughs> When I was in her class, and I still remember this thing that she did, she wanted to encourage us all to read books and write book reports and maybe write stories. And by stories, we're talking about like a one piece of paper kind of story. But 
she ran this contest that whoever won got to go home with her and eat McDonald's for dinner. Ooh. But that was the prize, and I was very motivated by that. And I think I wrote 77 one-page stories for this contest, and then I won. And from then on, I was kind of hooked on this idea of writing. I had a lot of influences early in my life. One of them was uh, some friends of the family that Mrs. Addicts was the school librarian, and her husband, Dr. Addicts, was professor of literature at the local college. He was very involved with my, in my life as a child. He worked with the Boy Scout troop I was in. And I can remember us being camping and freaked out, um, big thunderstorm. And some other kids had told us about this bear and we're all freaked out. And to calm us down, Dr. Addicts basically off the cuff told us the story of Ulysses. Oh. You know, so... I've, I've just been exposed to this kind of stuff, I guess, my whole life. And it just got worse once I started reading Stephen King. So, <laughs> You and I, I think, were right about the same age. Yeah. And I started, I started reading Stephen King, oh my gosh, early, early in hardcover. I, I, don't, oh, think I, was, child. I don't think I was double digits yet. Yeah. I started reading him because my father Explains loved him. About your, hey, uh, hush. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I hush, say that out loud? Hush. <laughs> you... <laughs> uh, so I, I I don't know, man. He I think paved the way for a lot of people to start thinking about writing when they were young. Definitely. Yeah. You know, he talks about a lot that hole in the page. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you read his author's notes and on writing, he talks about the hole in the page. And his books always got me through that hole in the page and just total immersion in the book. And that is the very reason why I write the way that I write, because when I'm writing in this discovery way, I get that hole in the page sensation for myself. So it's kind of like reading and writing at the same time. Yeah. And I think the reason that, you know, there are other authors that I very much liked or like, I should say, and enjoyed their work. But I think the what hooked me so much about Stephen King and got me thinking about writing is how open it was about the process for him, mm-hmm. you know, and all of his author's notes and, you know, even the tidbits of Stephen King that you can see inside of his characters, I think just kind of spoke to me. Yeah. There, there is definitely something unique about him and his writing style and what he puts into his books and, You've got to read the author notes and everything else. He freely gives his his best techniques, his advice. He he. It seems to me he really tries to help people who want to write figure out how to go about doing that. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I think it comes back to, you know, he tells a story about being in a writing class and the professor just tore him up. He submitted some story in the professor gave him an ass and told him he should quit and he was never going to be a writer and da 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 and Stephen King took that story turned around sold it to a magazine and went back with the the first page of the story that had a, the f on it and the pay stub or whatever it was and tacked it to the guy's door and wrote fuck you across the top <laughs> nice you know i think because of those kinds of experiences, he doesn't want people to have those kinds of experiences 
And I, I think he's so free with his, his methods, his technique, his advice. I think he's inspired a lot of people by being that way. Yes. And, you know, you got to give him credit. <laughs> I've got to say this, and it's not a popular opinion, I don't think. And <laughs> I'm 54, so I don't care. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Creative writing classes in general, to me, are like art classes. Unless you're going in to learn sentence structure and the business side of it, they're kind of useless because you've got somebody who's got their own set of views and their own way of doing things and their own opinion telling you most of the time that your set of views and your way of doing things and your opinion are not correct and need to conform to whatever this textbook says. And I disagree with that. When you come to the creative um, music or writing or drawing or anything like that, that is a good way to crush somebody's potential is to tell them your way of doing it is wrong. Yeah. And I, I think that it, it, I think it depends, right? Because I've had some classes that I really feel the way that you, what you just said. And it seems to be that those kind of classes came from people whose career was being a professor. Mm -hmm. The other creative writing classes that I've had that were empowering and super and great were people whose career was novelist and they happened to be teaching some creative writing classes. But for the most part, people all the time ask me, what books should I read so that I can become a writer? And it's such a, to me, it's a dangerous thing, right? To think that you need to go and read a book on plot to figure out how to write. There's value in them, but I see so many people who spend years and years and years and years and years going from one book and one method of plotting and one, you know, method of building character to another, and they're not writing. They're just reading these books about writing. I don't think you really can learn how to become a writer unless you're writing. Correct. You know? 100% correct. You have to try stuff and fail and figure out why it didn't work. And, you know, you also have to find your own voice. Because otherwise, you're just trying to copy something or someone's technique. The other story I tell a lot is I know someone who idolized this one author. And that author's advice was that you have to find a place where no one's going to bother you, where you have complete silence, and then you have to write. And this person bought into that so much that she can't write unless she's in a quiet room where no one's going to bother her. And I went the other way. You know, I play loud, heavy metal when I write. I wrote one book uh, in the space of a weekend a long time ago um, while we were watching, we were binge watching some shows on television. Wow. Um, because I, I don't want to be constrained. I want to be able to write when I need to write. You know, in hindsight, that was really good because... If I had to have everything just perfect, I could not be writing now, you know, because, right. um, you know, your hands hurt or <laughs> whatever. You've got to be able to get into the story, block that out, and just be able to, what I call, crank the words, you know. And you, you asked towards the beginning, you know, how I am able to be productive, so productive or whatever. It's definitely impacted my productivity, but at the same time, 
writing for me is a bomb. And if I can, I will, you know, start some days and I'll tell Melissa, geez, I don't know if I can write today. My hands hurt. I'm so tired. I've got brain fog or whatever. And she always says something like, yeah, but you always say how much it helps. So just go try, you know, and I'll go do it. And then I'll have a full writing day because it takes me away from those things, you know, hands or brain fog or whatever. It gets me past those. So in a lot of ways, I'm productive because I'm trying to self-comfort, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, but, but sometimes that's the best way to do it, yeah. right? You get the best ideas that way. And as for complete silence, I will tell you right now, um, I was working on a book last year, and I took pieces of conversation my, my husband and child were having, <laughs> and they made it into the book. <laughs> yeah. I find it it helps. Uh, Eric, this is a paranormal podcast. Your books your books your books relate to the paranormal, but have you ever had experiences, like personal experiences? So, the next horror book I'm writing, which you know because of the art team, is called Wrathchild. And you've seen the cover, mm-hmm. right? Yes, I have. Um, the cover is a guy in a straight jacket with some kind of creature on his back and the creature's tongue stuck into the back of his head. I worked for a while as a psychiatric technician in a mental hospital um, while I was doing my bachelor's degree. And I've seen some very weird stuff that some of which I used in Wrathchild, but things that we could never figure out. And I don't know if they were paranormal or whether it was just some really creative schizophrenic guy, but we definitely had things happen on that ward that we didn't know how they were possible. You know, I'm talking about like somebody getting through three locked doors all by themselves with no keys, but yet they're back in this closet in a place they should have never been able to get to. And the guy had this like 14 inch cut down his forearm and there was nothing that he could have cut himself with. Wow. Wow. Right. And we asked him, Hey, what happened? And he said the silver server did it. Right. So the silver surfer, obviously is a comic book guy. We know that there's no silver surfer, but we never figured out how he got through those three locked doors and cut himself. Wow. You know, yeah, wow. Were they still locked or were the doors unlocked when you went to... They were key-only deadbolted doors, and they were all locked. So we asked him, but unfortunately his mental state at that time was too far gone right. to be able to give us any kind of sensical answer. But I had a lot of experiences there that were creepy, to say the least. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's the answer to my question. I, I don't know right. <laughs> if I had a quote-unquote paranormal experience or I just had a, an experience in a psychiatric hospital, you know? Right. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm looking up pictures of the Silver Surfer as we're talking. Right. <laughs> and he kind of he's, he's kinda resembles a shadow figure that a couple of... Our, we, we're, we're working on a series and it's like uh, friends and neighbors, so... People in the area are giving us their their 
paranormal experiences and we're putting them together into episodes for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of resembles somebody who has shown up frequently. Yeah. In in what they've discussed. Look, see. Yeah. I know listeners, you can't see, but you can Google and, and look yourself. Right. And then you'll see. Right. But the eyes and the. Especially like that one. Yeah, this one right here where he's got the eyes and stuff. So it's possible that something might have happened and that was his way of recognizing and relating it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he was a not very coherent person. So whatever it was that he saw, whether it was hallucination or what, I don't know, but he had trouble communicating whatever it was that he was trying to communicate again with. So, you know, just latching on to something that's like it, would definitely be in in his wheelhouse. Yeah. Huh. I, I give you credit for working in a psychiatric hospital. Oh, that's got to be a tough, a good, tough go. A good chunk of the the um, scarier stories that we've gotten have come out of those. So, yeah, you made it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you made it. <laughs> it's definitely an experience. And once you've read the book, we can talk about it again, and I can tell you which ones were experiences that actually happened to me and the people I worked with. Um, We also had, the town that I grew up in had a legend that was supposed to be uh, ghosts from the Civil War. Yeah, it was called uh, the Oviedo Lights. And it was this one river that was kind of outside of the, the town's limits or whatever, but Tons of people talked about seeing what they thought were lanterns up the river that was supposed to be uh, some soldiers from the Civil War who had gotten lost or whatever. So it's, you know, that's part of the reason that I write horror. Stephen King is obviously a big influence there, but also these things that I experienced and heard about all my life, you know? Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to that book. By the way, now now I'm like really like, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on it. What's coming up? Uh, in terms of books? In terms of books, yes. So I am almost done with Wrathchild. So that's going to be sometime the end of this year. I'm trying some wood to knock on because it's been a pain. Uh, <laughs> it has definitely been a problem child type of book. You know, about the closest I come to writer's block is when I want something to happen a certain way and the story Mm-mm. doesn't care nope. that I want it to happen that way. <laughs> Absolutely not. You you don't get to control the story. After Wrathchild, I'm going to work on another dark fantasy series that's been kicking around in my head for a while that will be called Discordance. And then each book will be Death's Dark something like the first one's going to be death dark herald and then death dark princess kind of following that pattern and it's going to be more of a kind of traditional dark fantasy think joe abercrombie type of book but i've also got you know my my problem is that i have too many ideas and i want to write them all (laughs) and picking and choosing what i'm going to do next is always hard for me and especially now that I have Claw and Warder, because I can pretty much go on with that forever, I think. They're so fun and so easy to write, but they take time, you yes. know. So I'm I'm definitely going to do the, the Discordant series next. I may do a horror novel after that. 
I may do some more Blood of the Asir after that, or I might do something totally different. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like me with writing music. (laughs) It's the same way I am. I have so many ideas I want to do. I got to give Melissa a lot of credit here. She puts up with this. (laughs) Yeah. She does. I nominate your wife for sainthood. And I tell her about stuff all the time, and she's like, you know, I don't know anything about this book, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't care. Let me tell you what's going to happen in this thing. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> Let, last year, last November, I did the um, National Novel Writing Month thing, the 50,000 right. words. I did the same thing to him. I drove him crazy for 30 straight days. <laughs> hey, 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 let me tell you about, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, but listen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Totally no no context whatsoever to, to base it on or anything. Eric, you have, yep. you, you have been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for, for putting up with us. Yes. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. You say that now. <laughs> Wait till we're done editing. <laughs> we hold the power of gods in our hands as we edit. Yep. That's right. <laughs> and by we we mean John because I, I don't I don't touch the equipment, so John does all the editing. So that's what I mean by we. And I'm just saying Celia Clark, great victim's name. That's all I'm telling you. Well, you know, you <laughs> You brought this on yourself, the big delay in putting you in, because you said uh, that you made the Dexter comment. Yeah, I know. Do you remember that? Yes, so, I do. Yeah. So I've already got in my head Uh-oh. Uh-oh. where I'm going to use your name. Uh-oh. But I just have to wait until I write that story idea, you know? Fine, okay. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I just got myself in trouble. <laughs> thank you so much, sir, for, for coming on the show. I yes, really appreciate you. it. Thank you for having me. Take care. 